Right now we're in a sermon series. Uh, we're looking at the book of Mark, um, and we're in chapter 8. So if you can pull out your Bibles, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit through the scriptures this morning. Uh, one of my fascinations um, as I've studied uh, in seminary, the biblical text, is the Old Testament. And um, I'm fascinated with finding ways that the Old Testament lives in the New Testament. And so this morning, you might be a little confused, like, is she preaching from the old or the new? It's both. Um, So I'm going to kind of move some themes or highlight some themes that kind of translate through both the Old and the the New Testament this morning to give us a broader perspective of the story of God. So if you can pull out your Bibles, we are in the eighth chapter, again, of Mark. And uh, last week, um, Pastor David uh, focused a little, he started out uh, this sermon series and talked a little bit about the yeast. And we were able to see, uh, as the children showed us, how very tiny and how very small those pieces of yeast are that can infect uh, the loaf of bread or the body of Christ. And that we ought to watch out and be careful for the ways that those small seeds uh, can infect the body of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to take a fuller look and a fuller picture at the eighth chapter of Mark, verses 1 through 26. So let's start this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 21. Um, I'm going to kind of bounce around so it may feel a little scattered, but you'll be able to to keep up. Um, If you want to rise with me to honor the reading of God's word, again, I'll be reading Mark 8, 1 through 6, and then I'll drop down to 16 through 21, and then I will end us actually in the middle of this pericope of scripture. Mark 8, it reads as thus, in those days, there was again a great crowd without anything to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. His, disi- <clears throat> excuse me, his disciples replied, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they distributed them to the crowd. Verse 16. They said to one another, it is because we have no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not? perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of full pieces did you collect? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. And then he said to him, do you not yet understand? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have your seat. 
Pray with me now. God, I thank you for uh, these people, your children, that you have brought to this place, God, that we might journey through your scriptures to learn more of you. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here with us moving and tealing the soil of our heart, oh God, that as you drop a ripe seed in the place of our hearts, God, I pray uh, that it would grow and produce fruit for your kingdom. And so, God, I pray now that you would take the words of my mouth and translate them into the language of the hearts of these, your people. God, you are the God that took five fish and and some loaves, God, and then you uh, broke them and you blessed them and you multiplied them a number of ways to feed varied very different people. And in the same way, God, I pray that you would take your word that will spill forth from my mouth this morning, and I pray that you would break it into uh, a numerous number of pieces that will very specifically feed the hearts and the lives of those that have come, saying, I'm hungry, God, feed me. I am thirsty, God, quench my thirst. And God, as we come collectively calling, We thank you that you will answer. And so use me now, hide me behind the empty cross, that Jesus Christ might be the center of all attraction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 18, do you not remember? 8.21, do you not yet understand their deficient memory affect affected their flawed faith which affected their ability to really know Jesus their lack of remembrance is keeping them in a fog about who Jesus really is to them and to the world do you not remember do you not yet understand Remembering is what the Jewish Jewish festivals were all about. The Passover celebration remembered when God passed over their homes and saved their families when the firstborn sons of Egypt were being killed. The festival of tents remembers how the God presence traveled with the Israelites during their 40 nomadic years in the wilderness. Remembering the goodness of God to them and their people was part of growing the faith among the generations of family to come. Remembering also builds our faith and helps us understand how Jesus is present in our current reality. Do you not remember? Do you not yet Understand? God seems to be continuously telling the same miraculous story. This same miraculous story of God's power over and over again. A story that spans generations of believers in the God of the ancestral mothers and fathers of the faith. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel and Leah. This Mark 8 miracle feeding mimics the God who made the miracle of manna in the desert for the Israelites. But later generations must have thought, but that was then, this is now. That can never happen again. 
but God did it again. And through a different vehicle, God did it. God, the son repeated the wilderness feeding of the Israelites and fed the wilderness crowd in Mark's gospel. And as we continue to move through this gospel, you will see how it's the feeding of uh, the, the stiff necked Israelites in the wilderness for whom God had done many miracles, but yet they still didn't believe. And here again in this Mark 8 uh, a pericope of scripture, we see uh, the same hard heartedness where God is doing many miracles, but yet the Pharisees and even dare I say the disciples, they still don't yet really fully believe that was then. This is now that can never happen again. Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? What's also fascinating to me is how God's story spills off the pages of the biblical narrative into our lives. I think about the Israelites in Egyptian territory first honored as esteemed guest of the family of Joseph, but ultimately seen as a threat to Egyptian territory and thus enslaved. The Egyptians didn't remember that it was the wisdom of their Hebrew ancestor, Joseph, that saved the lives of the Egyptian people during a deadly famine. For 430 years, they cried out to the echoing silence of a God who did not deliver. But as they were crying out, God was raising up a deliverer. And when the time was right, God sent Moses to deliver God's people. But that was then. This is now. That can never happen again. But God did it again. My tribal African ancestors were forcefully enslaved in a foreign land and became a people of the diaspora. That is a dispersed and displaced people who didn't have a welcome place to return to or call home when the shackles were 250 years later removed from their hands and their feet, but barely their psyche. God raised up deliverers in the form of abolitionists like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and countless others who joined the liberation efforts. But that was then. This is now. That can never happen again. But God did it again, my brothers and my sisters. Freedom for the people of African descent has been a progressive process. Post-slavery, during the reconstruction of this country, after over 600,000 lives were lost in civil war, slave, slave codes were translated into black codes like Jim Crow laws that, with the same purpose of oppressing the humanity and freedom of black bodies. This continued oppression erupted a civil rights movement. God raised up a deliverer in the form of a nonviolent movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. This exposed the harsh reality of the simple truth of unjust treatment and daily oppression of people of color in this nation. But that was then. This is now. That can never happen again. But God did it again. I was watching Long Walk to Freedom a couple weeks ago. The story of Nelson Mandela's long journey to finding a place of resolve in South Africa's apartheid political system that gave distinct privilege to its people with white skin. 
And then God raised a movement of the common people led by Nelson Mandela. But that was then. This is now. God can never do it again. Wait, can he? Can God do it again? Here in these yet-to-be United States of America, really, God, can you do it? Again, is the Black Lives Matter movement a vehicle of your choosing to once again interrupt business as usual and, and shine a light of injustice that has your people crying out in misery and despair? Can God do that again? Is the mass of Chicago protesters gathering to shut down a rally destined to stir discord and division a sign of hope? that God can do it again? Is this a reason? A small glimmer of hope that we should yet keep praying and believing that the justice of God can be manifest in the kingdom of God on earth. Do you not remember Do you not yet understand? Theologians debate whether or not this story of the feeding of 4,000 in the wilderness is just a repeat of the previous feeding of 5,000 a couple chapters back. Just one story told a couple different ways. Do you know why they debate this? They debate this because it's hard to believe that the disciples could have had the same response twice. Could the disciples really respond with questioning again the power of the God, the Son of God? Surely if they had seen Jesus miraculously feed the first crowd, they wouldn't have doubted the power of God the second time, right? But how many times do we see Jesus do miracles in our lives? But we rewind the same old tape. Okay, that was then. This is now. That can never happen again. How many miracles must God do before our eyes, before we take God at God's word and believe God's power? How many single fish must Jesus multiply in your life before the faith will grow from its mustard seed beginnings? You do know that the mustard seed of faith is not supposed to stay that way, don't you? The idea is that the seed will grow into a faith that endures and moves mountains out of your way. Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? In what area of your life has God produced miracle after miracle, yet you still only tenuously believe God in that area of your life? To that space of your life today, God says, believe that I will come through. Because faith that is seen, my brothers and sisters, is no faith at all. Habakkuk phrased it like this, the just shall live by faith. Jesus says it like this, but when you ask, you must 
believe and not doubt. Jesus told Lazarus' sister Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Paul said it like this, we walk by faith and not by sight. The Hebrews writer said it like this, now faith is the substance of things we hope for and the evidence for the things that we can not see. We are called to remember the activity of God in our lives that we might build our faith in the faith of our Christian community. This strengthening of our faith will help us to really know Jesus and understand his movement in our lives. When we when we memorialize the miraculous inbreaking of God, we better understand the mission of God in and through our lives. Evelyn came up to me a little bit ago and she said, I've been praying for you. Okay, I need your help right here because the Holy Spirit wants me to tell a story that I don't want to tell. So I need Evelyn's help. <laughs> As I uh, read this next piece, we're going to move to the end. Like I said, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. We're going to end in the middle. So, um, so let's read Mark 8, uh, 22 through 25. Mark 8, 22 through 25. It says, they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, well, I I can see people, but, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands, his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently and his sight was restored And he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even go into the village. And as I read uh, this story, uh, this passage, this part of the text, I thought of a personal story that I will share in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Um. (laughs) So, so last year, uh, I uh, began dating a guy who's a very dear friend of mine, um, a guy that I have grown up with. Um, it's a guy that I've known for almost 20 years, and he's a man that I know and love and trust very deeply. But at the time we decided to cross the friendship line, he was in a crisis of faith. And honestly, I wanted to save him from it. When I realized where the relationship was going, I sat in a prayer room at school and I told God that I would not move until I heard God's wisdom on how and if to move forward in this relationship. After three hours of God's silence, I decided to move on in peaceful frustration. But as I stood from the chair, 
The Holy Spirit spoke to me. Process. Allow the process to unfold. What does that mean? I was looking for a yes or a no, Jesus. That's what I need to know, yes or no. Nevertheless, I proceeded in the relationship and walked through the progressive revelation God gave me. The answer didn't come all of a sudden, but over time and through a process, it was revealed. I finally got it when God showed me that it wasn't so much about a yes or a no, or a right or a wrong, but God wanted to show me my free will and my ability to choose. And Pastor David preached a sermon during this time from which I gleaned some guidelines for choosing. Will the thing that I choose draw me close to or away from God? Will the thing I choose strengthen and empower me to do God's will for my life as I know it? Or will it sap my power and weaken my vision? Will my choice build up or tear down the ministry my life was shaped to pursue? Will my choice feed my God-given mission and passion or will it inadvertently suck the life from it? From the first time I sat in the prayer room for three hours until the time that I finally got it, six months had passed. This was not a message I was able to glean at the first pass. I can't even say that if God said no, that I would have taken God at God's word. But this was a message God progressively revealed. And as I saw God's face like never before, the more I questioned, the more I struggled with this decision, the more I spent time in God's presence. You know what I discovered? I discovered God's patience with me. And I discovered God's love for me. And I'm not sure that a simple yes or no would have fed my soul in the same way. When God touched me the first time in that prayer room, my vision was still fuzzy. I was like, come on, Jesus, real simple, just yes or no. Whatever you say, I'll do it, yes or no, stay or go. I had a few people in my life I specifically appointed to be in prayer with me throughout this journey. I probably drove them crazy. Did I, Mama Blue? Did I drive you crazy? I probably drove them crazy as I talked about this thing until I was blue in the face. But just as God led the man away from the crowds, God wanted to lead me away from all the opinions I was seeking to spend some personal time together with God on the matter. God led the blind man away from the crowds because they didn't have the answer to help him see. I pressed these prayer partners to give me the answer. Just tell me what I should do. She wouldn't tell me. But God kept calling me away to seek God's face on the issue. Can you see anything yet? Jesus asked me. I would read and reread my journal obsessively, trying to find the answer or discover a sign I missed, but nothing. Still confusion, still fogginess, no clarity. 
But God was so patient. And when I was ready, God touched again, and I saw. It was kind of like Dorothy when Glenda the Good Witch told her, all the time you had the power in your ruby red slippers. You had the power to choose to stay here in Oz or to go. I finally saw that the answer was ultimately my choice. I had the freedom to make a choice with my being in mind. Who am I? And what choice will make me more of who I am and who God is calling me to be? But the most important part of this journey was realizing the new perspective that God wanted to show me. But that took a season of spending very intentional time with God to navigate my way through the fogginess until my answer to God's question, can you see anything, became an emphatic yes. God, I see clearly now. Do we really take the time to see what God wants to show us in decision-making? Something that might lie beyond the obvious. If God doesn't immediately give the answer, do we spend the necessary time to walk out the process with God until we can say, I no longer see trees that look like people walking. But we can say, oh, Jesus, now I see. Now I see what you wanted to show me. Now I see that I wanted yes or no, but you wanted to show me something deeper that it would take time and a process to reveal. And moving on, we're going to keep moving down. Mark 11. I'm going to read Mark 11. And then we're going to put Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5 on the screen after I read 11. Um, And I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to put it there um, as a reference for you as I uh, reference the continuity uh, between these two texts. Mark 8 and 11. Mark 8 and 11 reads, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, asking him for a sign from heaven to test him. Give us a sign from heaven. And then if you have Deuteronomy 13, you may or may not have it. Um, You do? Okay. Um, so Deuteronomy 1, uh, 13, 1 through 5, we'll put on the screen. And so in Mark 11, there's this correlation, uh, this give us a sign from heaven. Why are they asking for a sign? Are they just annoying Jesus? Or what is this thing about a sign? Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, as you can see, speaks of the instruction from God to ask for a divine sign from one who declares themselves a prophet. 
Deuteronomy warns the Israelites against false prophets who may be attempting to lead them away from the one true God. The Pharisees would have known this Deuteronomic warning and they would have sought to heed its instruction. So they were doing the right thing by asking for the sign, but their hard heartedness didn't allow them to receive the signs that Jesus was giving. Have you ever prayed for a thing and then didn't see it when God sent the answer? Before we judge the Pharisees and say, duh, dummies, Jesus is from God. He is the Christ. He's healing people and exercising demons and walking on water. Duh, don't you get it? Well, we can read the book and know the end of the story. So our vision is 2020 on the thing. But I wonder where there are spaces in our own lives where we have been, we have beat down heaven's door and blown up Pastor David's cell phone, seeking an answer from God on the thing God has already responded to. Can I get an amen? But your heart is hardened to answer to the answer that God gave you. You want a yes, but God gave you a no or a not yet or a not that way or you are not satisfied with the answer. So you are content to sit in confusion and continue asking for a sign of an answer that is different from the one God has already given. Give us a sign from heaven. And so I'm going to end right smack dab in the middle of this text. We're going to look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, um, after they asked for a sign, and he sighed deeply in his spirit, And he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. God had already prepared Jesus for this test. In the wilderness boot camp, he began before his public ministry. Satan came to tempt Jesus at his 40-day intensive wilderness seminary experience before he began full-time ministry. Satan says, prove to me who you are by showing me what you can do. If, in fact, you are the son of God, you can jump off this building and the angels will catch you. Likewise, the Pharisees demand a sign. Jesus' response to Satan and the Pharisees, he says, my being is not predicated on my doing. I am who God says I am in spite of your disbelief. No sign shall be given to this generation. The parallel gospel text to this verse is Mark 16 and 4. And it it, it reads a little bit more um, expressively. You you don't have that one, but I'm just going to name how it reads more expressively. It says, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation. No sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation generation. This generation was blind to the movement of God through Jesus and was unwilling to accept him as the manifestation of God. And so this made me really curious. 
If their generational curse was evilness and unfaithfulness, what is the curse of our generation? Where are we falling short of being able to see Jesus for who he really is? In my curiosity, I was bold enough to ask God for a sign. What is the thing for this generation? What is the thing that keeps this generation from seeing the miraculous hand of God more often? So I began to pray about it. And here's here's what I believe Jesus would say to us. No sign shall be given to this generation which has shamelessly abused privilege. No sign shall be given to this generation which has shamelessly abused privilege. The Israelites had little in Egypt. Then God tested them with just enough in the wilderness. When they gathered too much, it spoiled in their cabinets until they got it. Likewise, in this marking text, Jesus is testing the crowd with just enough. And there remained leftovers, basketfuls of leftovers. But what about us? How does this generation handle living in a land of plenty with much abundance? How has privilege blinded you from seeing the necessary part you need to play in the work of God in your community? How has privilege replaced God on the throne of your life? The sin of this generation is our abuse of privilege. God can't manifest miracles in this nation because abuse of privilege blinds us. This is a prophetic word to this generation. No more signs because your privilege is a barrier to the revelation of God. If there is a sin for this generation to lay at the throne of God and weep over, it is the sin of abused privilege. It is the sin of not being faithful with much. The Israelites were held up in the wilderness because God wanted to touch their eyes and walk them through the process that would help them to see how to live in that land flowing with milk and honey and still remain faithful to their God. Yahweh wanted to show them how to be faithful with much in the land of abundance. God knows that when oppressed immigrants come to a new land, they don't quite know how to conduct themselves in a just manner because they themselves have never been treated that way before. I want to pause parenthetically and say, you do know we all immigrants in this country, don't you? I-J-S. 
God knows when you never had freedom and abundance, you might not know how to function when you get it. You see, this is what the Ten Commandments and the Levitical laws and the Deuteronomic laws were all about. It was about helping to form and shape a people who would live a life by a law of respect for one another. Live a life by a law of respect for the humanity of all people. Live a life by a law of dwelling in neighborhoods where love and freedom and life and prosperity flourish. But they flourish not just because my family is flourishing, but because the community is well fed and because the community is clothed and because the community has health care and because the privilege of one does not mean the decimation of the other but privilege privilege God says has poisoned us God forgive us God have mercy Lord have mercy God have mercy God, forgive us for the ways that our privilege has made us think we are better than our sister or our brother. God, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed our privilege to keep our brothers or sisters in bondage while we perpetuate that we live a life of freedom. God, forgive us for the ways that our privilege has blinded us from seeing how to live in a space of true compassion. God, forgive us for the ways that our privilege has made us believe that we are better than someone else because we are more educated or because our hair is longer or straighter or curlier or because our skin is lighter or whiter or because our home is in a higher rent district or because our family is less dysfunctional or because our car is of a foreign origin or because our mortgage is more expensive or because we live on a safer block or because we are married and not single God forgive us God, forgive us for the ways that our privilege has blinded us from your simple truth. Truth that calls us to love our sisters and our brothers as we love ourselves. Privilege. Privilege, God says, has poisoned us. But if my people who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin of the abuse of privilege. And I will heal their land. And so this Mark 8 passage leaves us with many invitations in this Lenten season. As we are confessing sin and uncovering layers of shame, Lenten season is an invitation to ask God to reveal places in our lives where our privilege has blinded us from seeing the best pathway of God for our lives. This season is an opportunity to see where has privilege left us seeing fuzzy visions of trees that look 
like humans walking? Where has privilege blinded you in such a way that you think you are in a desert land with no sustenance when there is a really abundance all around you? Where do you need to take a step back so God can walk you through the process of bringing you to a new perspective that you may see your dilemma with new eyes? Or or what is it that you need to remember that, that that might strengthen your faith and refuel your hope in God? It is my prayer that in this Lenten season, this text, this week will give you some spaces um, to, to pray and to uncover and to sit with God. Please pray with me. God, while this word is yet stirring in the hearts of these, your people. God, I pray that you would uncover in each of these lives the very specific ways that this message speaks to their heart. For some, it might be white privilege. For others, it might be the abuse of the privilege of wealth. For others, it might be the abuse of the privilege of education or status. Wherever, wherever that place is, that God is speaking to your heart. God, I pray that you would this morning would allow that thing to continue to stir and to move and to shape the life of this, your child, this week. God, I pray that you would begin to uncover spaces and places that maybe we, that that you maybe have not even begun to reveal to us until this moment, this space right now. And God, I pray that we will not look at these spaces in our hearts with a a feeling of guilt and a a feeling of self-condemnation. But God, I pray that these would be spaces and places where you are calling us to draw near to you in prayer. And so be near to us, God, as we call to you, be near to us. And God, as we sit with you, God, help us to remember to remember the ways that you have changed us and shaped us and loved us thus far on this Christian journey. Thank you for the ways that the stories of the faith have kept us thus far. Use those stories and those reminders to refuel the places in our lives where we feel dry and barren, 
the spaces and places where we feel like you cannot and you have not and don't have the ability to show up. Remind us. Help us remember, oh God. The God who impregnated us when we were barren people. The God who fed us when we were hungry. The God who quenched us when we were thirsty. Help us to remember, God. God, as we remember and as we repent of the sin of the abuse of privilege, God, we ask, we ask that you would be patient with us. And that in the process, we would never doubt your love, but pour it out on us by the fullness of who you are, that we would remember that you're naming it because you love us, that you're naming it because you want us to draw nearer, that you're naming it because you want us to see. You want us to know you in deeper and newer and better ways. And so, God, let us feel that love and compassion that you have for us as we draw near. In Jesus' name we pray.